All right, with that said, we are in our sermon series in the book of Judges. If you have your Bible and you want to open to Judges chapter 10, you can do that. Today is going to be a little bit unusual in that we're looking at two different chunks, one small chunk of Judges 10 and one small chunk of Judges chapter 12. This will be uh, unusual also in that uh, we're, we're going to spend a lot of time kind of looking uh, at some people that you've never really heard of before. You never really heard of them. We've got all sorts of bold, dramatic characters in the book of Judges, Gideon and Deborah and Samson. You've not heard of any of these people today, okay? I, I promise you that. If you have, God bless you. You're a Bible scholar. Uh, before we dive in, though, I'm going to invite Shandis to come. She's going to do our New Testament reading from the book of Colossians chapter 3, and then I'll pray and we'll dive in. Thank you, Thanks. Good morning, Sound City. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. Thanks. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And God, today I pray that you would help us um, just in particular to really examine our lives and examine our own hearts. God, we, uh, we do want to receive truth and information, but God, even at a deeper level, we want that to lead to uh, a life transformation, that we would be changed, we would be shaped uh, by you, by your word, by your spirit. Uh, God, for myself, I ask that you would guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, for all of us, Give us soft hearts. Give us receptive hearts, God, as we ask questions and wrestle through things. God, would you help us to do so uh, in a way that draws us closer to Jesus? In whose name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Well, I already kind of alluded it that we're, we're looking at these, these kind of no-name nobodies today. Uh, that's the title of the sermon. Looking at these, these characters from the book of Judges that you've really not heard of before. You've really not examined in, in great detail before. Uh, a list of, in, in two different sections, kind of this list of people who kind of came and went and came and went. And so I just want to begin by kind of te- teasing this up, by asking the question, where do you find your life's significance? Where do you get your value? What, what at the end of the day, if, if, if you lay your head down on your pillow when you're done with the day, when you lay down on your deathbed at the end of your life, you say, I know that my life had meaning. I know that my life has had value and significance because of fill in the blank. Where do you get that value? What makes you special? What makes you unique? I remember I had a, <laughs> I had a birthday card last year. I believe it was from my mother-in-law. And it said, it said something like, um, you're not just special, dot, 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 and then you open it up, it said, you're also smart and good-looking too, or something kind of, you know, funny like that. Not really funny, but kind of like that. Like a mother-in-law funny. And, but, I, but, I read, but I read the card backwards, and instead of thinking it said, um, you're not just special, I thought it said, you're just not special. <laughs> I was like, is my mother-in-law trying to tell me something? Or I just had kind of a moment of dyslexia there. This is the rudest birthday card I've ever received. You're just not special. In our culture, you guys, we, we exist in a culture where we, we, we are bombarded with messages about what gives your life meaning, what gives your life value, what makes you special, what makes you um, unique, what makes you have value and significance. 
just to give you a, a couple of examples, you know, last week I quoted from the great American theologian Bob Marley. Uh, this week I wanted to change it up a little bit and quote from the great American theologian Katy Perry. This is what Katy Perry said. You just got to ignite the light and let it shine. Just own the night like the 4th of July. Because baby, you're a firework. Here it is. Here it is. Show them what you're worth. So that's a statement of value. Show them what you're worth. Make them go, oh, 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 as, as you shoot across the sky, which, by the way, doesn't rhyme. <laughs> actually, I shouldn't say this is the, Katy Perry gets the credit, but we actually know that this song was written by like a team of Norwegian ghostwriters. Like, you know, you know that she's not writing these songs, actually, right? <laughs> I'll give you one more example, right? Where do you find your value, your meaning, your significance? Another great American theologian, one who's also performed at the Super Bowl, Bruno Mars, says, every time I close my eyes, every time when I lay my head down at night, I see my name in shining lights. A different city every night, oh right, I swear, the world better prepare for when I'm a billionaire. And everyone goes, oh, oh, and he starts singing it, right? This is, this is what Bruno Mars has said, and he actually did write those lyrics, by the way. This is what he says would, would give his, his life meaning and value and significance if he had a billion dollars. Up until that, you know, 900 million, not enough. But a billion, at least a billion. The world better get ready. Friends, you cannot turn on the radio without being bombarded with messages of here's where you're going to get value, here's where you're going to get meaning, and here's where you're going to get significance. You cannot turn on the TV and watch the commercials without them selling you something, telling you that you need this product, you need this experience in order for your life to have meaning, value, and worth. You cannot go to the grocery store and walk through the check stand without the magazines yelling at you that you need this thing in order for your life to have meaning and value and worth. Do you guys know we do a form of that in the church as well, right? This can happen in the church as well. We could have kind of a churchy version of it where we say things like, we're going to be history makers. We're going to do great things for Jesus. We're going we're to be world changers. The world better prepare for when AaronGrayMinistries.com launches or whatever, right? <laughs> That's a joke. Um, but we can do this in the church. And, 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 and listen, friends, hear me on this. If God calls you to do great, public, notoriable things for him, then you'd better do it. And the praise and the glory goes to him. But those things do not make you more valuable or have more worth to God than the person who is right now, currently, helping change dirty diapers in our nursery out of the goodness of their heart. So this is the big idea of where we're going today, okay? It's a simple point. It's a profound point. And, I, I, and I'll even tell you, I'm going to sound like I'm repeating myself at times today because it is such a profound thing that we can believe in our heads, but we don't live it out of our hearts. And it's this. Most people won't find their name written in the history books. Most of us, we're not going to have our name written in the newspapers, the history books. And a person's true value and significance is only ever found in their relationship with Jesus. So with that said, let's, let's do this. Let's dive into Judges chapter 10. We're going to see a few fascinating things. Uh, Judges 10, we'll start back in verse 1. If you were here last week, you remember we, we read the story of Abimelech. 
uh, the absolute very worst king. He was not a judge of Israel. He was the son of Gideon, one of the judges of Israel. And he says, I want to be the king. And he, through violent force, uh, took control. Just an awful, awful dude. A really bad example to learn from. So then chapter 10 continues on. It says, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. That's some unique family names to have. <laughs> Granddad Dodo. A man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. So he's a man of Issachar, but he's not living in his homeland. He's living in Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, and then he died and was buried at Shamir. And there you have it. There's Tola. He ruled for 23 years. Now, let me just ask you, do you think anything happened in those 23 years? Do you think maybe some battles happened? Do you think some significant milestones, some significant events in his life took place? Most likely, most likely something happened, but the author of the book of Judges just tells us, yeah, he ruled for 23 years and he died and his dad and granddad had some weird names. Like, that's all we learn. You can see a hint of God's grace in that, um, in those two words, after Abimelech, uh, because remember, Abimelech was awful. So the fact that there was an after Abimelech, that shows that, that God is gracious. He hasn't given up on his people. That's really, that's all I, if, like if I had to preach just that passage, that's all I got. God is gracious. He won't let his people, he won't let his name be ruined even by the worst leader. Then you continue on to verse three. After him rose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years, and he had, get this, 30 sons. That's a a lot of sons. Who rode on 30 donkeys. A lot of donkeys. More donkeys than I've got. And they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which were in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. So you think like years later, when the book of Judges was being written, obviously it was written after these events took place, possibly the prophet Samuel. We don't really know who wrote the book of Judges. And they're talking. Maybe some scribes are talking like, hey, oh yeah, also remember there was Jair? And the guy's like, the donkey guy? Yeah, the donkey guy. Put that down. 30 sons. I don't know. You want to be remembered as the donkey guy, right? Travis Tuttle, the donkey guy. <laughs> he has 30 sons, which is not explicit in the text, but it most likely implies multiple wives. Because I think all of the women who have ever had children here will agree with me, I ain't having 30 kids. So, so uh, quite likely, again, it's not explicit, but quite likely, This guy has done what the pagan kings do and collected multiple wives. He's now had multiple sons. We we, we chuckle about the donkey thing, and it is kind of silly sounding, but one uh, Bible commentator helps us to see that this, this statement that they wrote on 30 donkeys seems humorous to modern Western readers, but in its ancient Near Eastern context, monarchs in the Levant often rode on donkeys. So appropriately, the sons of Jair rode on donkeys as evidence of their royal type power. So Jair takes a bunch of wives, that's a kingly thing to do, has a bunch of sons, that's a kingly thing to do, gets them all donkeys so they could ride and be a kingly type of people, and then he gives them each a city. So here's what Jair is basically trying to do. He's trying to establish himself as the king. He's trying to make sure that his life has value and significance by how much authority he has, by how much territory he rules over. All right, we are going to skip ahead because that's this odd little interesting chunk. Then we get to the story of Jephthah. We'll study Jephthah at the end of April. Uh, and and we'll, So we'll come back to this, but I want to skip over because there's another little chunk like that in Judges chapter 12 
starting in verse 8. And we meet a, a guy named Ibzan. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. Whoa. He's like, I see your 30 sons and I raise you. And the 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside of his clan and the 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. So he's, you know how in, in history you read about kings and, and monarchs, they, they will give princes and princesses away in marriage to try to, uh, you know, gain more political power. The exact same thing that's happening here. And outside of his clan, doesn't necessarily mean outside of Israel. It's, it's, it's unlikely that Ibzan is giving his children away in marriage to Canaanites, to those who don't worship the one true God. But he is doing so to other people in a different clan so he can have more power, more control over Israel. And he judged Israel for seven years, that's all. And then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. So there's Ibzan, it's just your life. Verse 11, after him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. By the way, someone told me after the first service that they met someone named Zebulon. Uh, so again, when I make these jokes about any of you expectant mothers looking for names, they're not jokes, I'm being serious, okay? After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years, and then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. That's it. No donkeys, no kids, nothing. Just boring, boring Elon the nobody. 10 years, didn't do anything worth writing down, I guess. Verse 13, after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite judged Israel. Now he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. Like we're just, we're just keep up in the ante here. Who rode on 70 donkeys and he judged Israel for eight years. Like, oh wait, wait, remember Abdon? Oh yeah, he was like the for real donkey dude. Like don't forget about that guy. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Friends, I... Uh, I'm not trying to be novel or unique here, but I literally have never heard a sermon preached on these verses before. When I did my research on the book of Judges, nobody has preached on these passages. So you guys are, you guys are witnessing a very unique experience right here. <laughs> pray for me and pray for yourselves. We read these stories. You know, if you're, if you're reading through the Bible, you read these stories, you come across like, what the heck are these things even doing in the Bible? Why, why, why are we taking up ink and paper to, to write about these people? That are, they didn't really do anything. You know, Gideon was this, uh, you know, reluctant leader who with 300 men defeated an army of 135,000 and then had an epic train wreck at the end of his life. And Deborah was this amazing leader and prophetess filled with the spirit of God and she did great things. Why are you, Bible, taking up sections in my Bible reading plan to tell me about these people where you don't really get to see very much? So they rode on donkeys. So they had a bunch of kids. Like, what does that have to do with my life? How does that affect me spiritually, emotionally, physically? I think there's one thing that we can see pretty clearly, and I really appreciate what one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, has to say. He says this, we don't know why the Bible tells us so little about Ibzan, but by telling us so little about Ibzan and Elon and Abdon, the Bible tells us a lot about the Bible. It tells us that its purpose is not to tell us about every Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. The Bible is saying is that its focus is not on man's life, but on God's action. The Bible is theocentric, God-centric. That does not mean that man does not count, but that man is not the center. Even though Gideon, for example, may receive three chapters, 
The writer's purpose is not to relate Gideon's eventful life, not even his problems, struggles, victories, or failures in themselves, but to depict Yahweh's saving activity. Friends, would you agree with me when I say that our culture, really all of world, world history, but our culture in particular, uh, we're pretty self-focused. Would you agree with me? You know, as evidenced by the songs I pointed to earlier. Um, and again, would you agree that that self-focus often finds its way into the church? The church becomes all about my wants, my needs, my feelings. Um, you guys, we're, we're blessed in the United States of America. We have all sorts of different churches. If you don't like this church, you can drive down the road and find 10 other different churches. We, we have choices. We, we have the, 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 the democratization of religion. But here's the thing. There's a real spiritual danger there. where We make the church, we make Christianity, we make the Bible all about me. My wants, my needs, my feelings. Friends, God's word is definitely for us. And we're included in here. But we're not the center and we're not the hero of the story. It's about God. It's about his saving activity through his son, Jesus. And what we can do as, as people, as fallen men, as fallen creatures, we really can grasp for significance. How, how, well then, if it's not about me, how do, I, how do I know that my life has value? How do I know that my life has meaning or worth? Let me just offer a few examples of ways that we seek significance. This list is not exhaustive, by the way, but it's just to help get the wheels turning. We can seek significance in our experiences. This might be you. This might be someone you could think of. But if I just have enough cool experiences, if I get to travel to enough exotic locations, if I get to hang out with enough famous people, if I get to take selfies with them, if I get to uh, have certain educational experiences or certain life experiences, well, then I will know that my life has meaning, value, and purpose. Problem is, is, What if you don't get those experiences? What if those opportunities never arise? Or what if you are like one of those people that gets to have every one of those experiences and at the end of your life say, it was just kind of a waste of time. I was entertained to death. I was diverted until I I died. Relationships. That's a huge one. A huge one. I mean, we're created for relationship. What could be better than relationships? But do you hear the kind of apocalyptic language that's given to romance in our culture? You know, I'll die if I don't have you. That was in a song I heard recently. I'll just die. I can't live without you. Like, really? I can't, li- I can't live if living is without you, right? That's kind of my- <laughs> Right? I mean, just think about that kind of apocalyptic language connected to romance. Romance is a beautiful thing, a romantic relationship. The, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, uh, the Bible tells us. But really, you're incomplete if you don't have that significant other? Your life doesn't have value or meaning because you lived it as a, as a single, non-married person? The Bible would, would disagree with that pretty, pretty strongly in a way that was shocking back then, a way that's still shocking today. What about money and or power? The thing about money is having money is rarely about having money. It's about having something else. Having power, having influence, having authority, having comfort, having convenience, having control. But the other problem is, is when you have money, how do you know that you have enough money? Enough money is a sliding scale. I was on a, a trip this last week. I went to Florida for a class and uh, the hotel where I was staying was literally across the street from a Ferrari dealership. And I realized I don't have enough money. 
there was a Ferrari dealership, there was a Lamborghini dealership, and if you went a few more, like a mile or so down the road, there was like a classic vintage car dealership. They had a Rolls Royce there that was probably worth like three of our houses. And I realized that's Seattle housing prices. I'm, I mean that. I don't have enough money. While I was there, I was also working on uh, myself and, and Kyle, one of our other staff members. We're going to travel to Uganda next month. I had to get five shots. If I seem a little stiff, that's because of that. But, you know, there, in the area where we're going, you need enough money to get a pair of shoes. Enough money is a sliding scale. And the problem is you're always going to be comparing yourself to somebody else who has just a little bit more than you. How do you know you have enough money? When is your value and your worth accomplished? People, people seek their significance in their accomplishments. Things that I have done. And actually, I would go so far, I'll, I'll link it to the next one, to fame. Uh, your accomplishments and your fame. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be fame in the sense of people, um, you know, putting your name up on in, in shining lights like Bruno Mars talked about or having fame where you're, you're standing in front of crowds of 10,000 people. But we want fame. We want our accomplishments to get noticed by somebody, don't we? You do a good job at work. Your boss says nothing. Your coworkers say nothing. You feel slighted, right? You, you cook a big, giant Thanksgiving meal. You work for days to put on this big feast and nobody thanks you. Nobody says it was good. You preach a sermon and nobody comes up to you afterward and says, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you know what I mean? We, we want to be noticed. We want to be patted on the head. We want to be patted on the back and said, good job. If I don't get those, do I, do I not have significance? There's a... Um, there's a biblical counselor and an author named Ed Welch, and he talks about, you know, when you, when you live your life, you need to ask these questions about, you know, who is God and, and who am I and where do we find our identity? And he says, when, when you start asking these types of questions, uh, he says, you might know some of the right, the right answers, like, I am a child of God. But our hearts are complicated. Do you agree with that, friends? Our hearts are complicated. The right answer is rarely your only answer. Instead, you usually have at least two sets of answers, those that are, quote, right, and those that actually guide the way you live. You might know the right answers. Well, yes, my identity is in Christ. My value comes from Jesus. But the problem is, like I said at the beginning, even though we might know the right answers up here intellectually, very often when we live our lives, we show that we're living according to a different set of answers. To discover your real answers to these questions... Uh, Ed Welch says, watch how you live. In particular, track your emotions. Look what makes you upset, depressed, angry, and anxious, or what makes you happy, calm, excited, and peaceful. Friends, if you get passed over for that promotion, I've been working hard, I've been putting in extra hours. I'm more qualified. I've got longer tenure. I deserve a promotion. And you get passed over. It is natural to feel some sense of disappointment. But you and the Holy Spirit and the community around you, you have to wrestle through, okay, is the disappointment that I'm feeling within just a normal healthy range of being disappointed or am I actually being crushed by this? Was I, was I finding too much of my identity in this? You, the Holy Spirit, and your community. When, when you make a big elaborate meal or you do something where you want to serve people and they don't say thank you, how's your heart? How's your heart? I can confess to you. I mean, I joked about it a minute ago. I can confess to you there are some Sundays where a million people come up and say, not a million, we don't have that many people in our church, but they come up and say, oh, that was a great, great sermon. We loved it, wonderful. And there are some Sundays where people are 
busy getting their kids or maybe they didn't think it was that good. There's some, there's some weeks when the sermon's just not that good, okay? And I go home. Not this one. This one's amazing though. So, <laughs> but there, I mean, I just confess to you for myself. Like there's weeks where I'm like, man, I didn't, I didn't get a lot of handshakes. And by the way, don't come up and shake my hand today now that I've said that, okay? We, we all have those areas where we have to wrestle. Like, is, is what I'm doing counting? Is what I'm doing have value? Do I have value? Friends, here's the, here's the beauty about looking at this idea of value. Do you know that our, our Jesus, he can relate. You think, how, how is that possible? How can Jesus relate? He's, you know, enthroned. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's uh, in the majesty on high. He's, you know, died. He's risen again. He's in glory. You say, yeah, but, but Jesus can relate. We get this from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Look at what the prophet Isaiah says about Jesus more than 500 years before Jesus was ever born. Isaiah says this, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Here it is, look at this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This would not fit the criterion of the Katy Perry, you're a firework sort of mentality, would it? No beauty, no form, no majesty. In one sense, you could say there's just really was nothing that special about Jesus. He, he, you know, you see some of these medieval or Renaissance paintings and Jesus has got like a halo and he's like glowing like he's been hanging around uranium or something like that. The reality is, is Jesus looked like your typical Middle Eastern Jewish man. Probably had a beard, probably had rough hands from working with his hands for 30 years, dark hair, brown eyes, olive skin, not glowing. No form, no beauty, no majesty that we should be attracted to and we should desire. And so friends, it is very possible to say that those times when you feel not very beautiful, when you feel not very special, when you feel not very valuable, Jesus can relate. Jesus can relate. Do you know this Jesus? It says that he was despised and rejected by men. Unlike Bruno Mars, he did not see his name in shining lights. When they did put his name up, it was a mocking sign that said, here's the king of the Jews despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from men whom, whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. We didn't think that he was very valuable. When you read about Jesus dying on the cross, what are people saying? Oh, you, you said you were the Messiah. You said you're the son of God. Come down off the cross esteemed him not. Who is this nobody? But what was happening in that moment of what, what looked like the greatest nothing, the greatest failure is that Jesus is actually accomplishing for us our very redemption. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs. Do you have any griefs? He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him uh, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We thought, oh, this is God, this is God punishing him. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Friends, you know that, that our sin, our transgression, uh, deserves a penalty. But Jesus took the penalty on our behalf. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Friends, this is our Jesus. This is our Jesus. 
He was willing to be esteemed not by the world. He was willing to be looked at as a loser, as a failure, as one whose life had no value or meaning. He was willing to be looked on like that so that we could find our healing, our redemption, our forgiveness, and our significance in him. This is such good news. And we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Look at that language. We have all sought significance in ourselves, my own way. It's all about me. We've all done it. So friends, if you come in here today feeling guilty or feeling ashamed of poor decisions you've made in your life, of sins that you've committed, I just want you to know that when you look around this room, there are exactly zero perfect people here today. Like naughty, I don't even have to round down, zero. We've all turned to our own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That our Jesus was willing to take our selfishness, to take our seeking value and worth and significance in ourselves. He's willing to take all of that upon himself so that we might have forgiveness. Such a good, such a good word. Colossians chapter three. We see where this is headed. That's what happened. But now we see where this is headed. It says in verse one, if then you have been raised with Christ, Christ didn't stay dead, by the way. He's alive. I'm excited to spend uh, the month of April celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to party on Easter Sunday because the tomb is empty. Amen? If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Remember the, remember the, the perspective that God has, friends. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's like this language of like like being clothed. You've been hidden in Christ so that what's true about Christ is true for you. When Christ, who is your life, appears, here it is, then you also will appear with him In glory, that word glory is a value statement. Something that has glory is something that has weight and value and significance. It's 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 amazing. If somebody has glory, you know, we talk about this with athletes. They had their moment of glory. Friends, your glory is found in being hidden in Christ. And is that enough? That's the question. That's the real question. Is that enough? I would submit to you that you and I, we are probably going to spend the rest of our earthly lives wrestling through this. Again, it's such an easy concept to understand. It is a hard concept to live out. Let me close with a couple of questions. I'm just going to read these. I'm going to read these slowly because I want to give you some time to kind of chew on them and think about them. Who knows your name? Who knows your name? Are there famous people right now that know your name? Celebrities or important people, the mayor, rich people that you can go over to their house. Who knows your name? Or does it matter to you more that Isaiah says that we're engraved on the palm of God's hand? Your name is written on the palm of God's hand. Which one is it going to be? Where's that value going to come from? Who's going to recognize your deeds? 
Who's gonna pat you on the back? Who's gonna shake your hand? Who's gonna give you that promotion? Who's gonna give you those accolades? I'm so thankful for the work you've done. Is that what you're living for? Is that what you're striving for? Or can you say that you're thankful for the words of Jesus in Matthew 25 where he says, one day you're gonna stand before God and you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. God knows your deeds. God knows when you're serving. God knows when you're following him. Whether or not, you know, the magazine Christianity Today ever writes about you or not, God knows. I actually prayed for Christianity Today never writes about us. That's the easy way to get in the history books, do something really bad. (laughs) Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Do you know that in Christ those words are already true about you. What if your life, let me ask you this question, what if your life is boring? What if you just have like a really boring life? What if you're like, uh, was it, which one? Tola, you know, just you lived, you did things, and then you died. And... Thrills, excitements, great accomplishments for God, great things for Jesus. What if your life is just relatively speaking kind of boring? For some of you who are, 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 Mothers and and homemakers, you wrestle with this one. What if the most significant thing you did was cut the crusts off a peanut butter and jelly sandwich tomorrow? 1 Thessalonians 4 says that we're urged to uh, live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You know that God can look at you and say, hey, that's a really good thing that you lived a nice, boring life. Do you know there's value in that? That God sees those little simple acts of service that you do day in and day out. Changing a diaper, cutting the crust off a sandwich. Some of you, you work a desk job and you're like, I just kind of sit there and I work a desk job. I didn't get to, you know, I didn't get to design a website that 10 million visitors come to. My, My website gets 10 visitors or whatever. God knows. And number four, where is your name written? Is your name written in the newspaper? Is your name written in the magazines? Is your name written in the history book? Or can you rejoice like Jesus tells us to in Luke 10, that rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. And it's written with something far more permanent than ink or digital ink. Your name is written in the blood of Jesus. Indelibly. Can't be snatched out of his hand, he said. I think this is important. This is important for me. This is important for us as a church. Um, we had a, a gathering of, of our um, community group leaders this la- a week ago, and we we're just kind of talking about just the state of the church, the health of the church, how things are going. And, um, you know, for us as a church to kind of think like, we're, our church is significant. We're really important. I went down, I, like I said, I was at this class. I met with some other pastors, other church leaders. I want to talk about how cool our church is. I think our, our, I think our church is cool. I actually really like you. Um, I really do. Uh, but, but there just becomes this thing, like, I want, I want my importance to be in our church, right? Whatever it might be, we're, we're going to be wrestling in a variety of different ways. You're going to have opportunities, probably before you go to bed tonight, to wrestle with your value and your worth and your significance. What gives your life meaning? Friends, may we be the type of Christians that find our value, worth, and significance in Christ alone. It's going to look radical, by the way. The world's not going to understand it. It's going to look radical, But I think in doing so, we'll find that we have deeper joy, deeper peace than we ever could have imagined possible. 
Can I just pray for you for a moment here? Before we even move on, God, I, I just ask right now, as, as your, your spirit is here present with us right now, God, I ask and pray that you would be gracious to show us in our hearts those things that, that we, whether we admit it or not, those things that we seek to give us value and significance. God, whether it's found in other people, whether it's found in stuff or money or experiences, God, whatever it might be, other things that I didn't list here. God, would you do the gracious work of convicting us in our hearts? God, would you help us to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit that you would show us those things? God, would you be so gracious as to surround us with other people in our lives who can help us kind of point out those areas where we, where we maybe go sideways? God, I ask and pray that you would help us as disciples to be the kind of disciples that we, we do want to do great things for you, but not so that we can gain some sort of value or significance. We just want to be faithful to what you've called us to. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, I want to call us to a time of response, and we're going to respond in a few ways. We're going to start with the giving of our tithes and offerings. I'll say a couple things about this. First of all, if you're a guest or a visitor, please know you're not obligated to give. Um, we would make an invitation if you want to give to support the work of the ministry here. But most importantly, like it says in, in, in 2 Corinthians, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The amount is less important than the heart. Amen? And some of you, you're like, well, this is not very significant, this gift I'm about to give. It's, it's not a very big amount. It's not gonna you know, help us purchase a, a long-term building for the church. God's interested in your heart. So I just encourage you to give with that joy, give with that faithfulness that he calls you to. If you wanna give online or text to give, there's instructions there on the screen. But while they're collecting the offering, let me read through a few discussion questions, things to help us this week. Um, as we gather in small groups to talk about um, our lives, let's be honest, where are you prone to seek your life's significance outside of Christ? in power or money or experiences or relationships or something else I didn't mention. Could we be vulnerable and share with each other this week? Number two, what kinds of thoughts or feelings do you have when you're passed over or unnoticed or viewed as insignificant by others? Number three, how does the gospel free us from seeking our identities and our accomplishments or accolades? And number four, where is God calling you to do something great for him? Friends, please, please don't walk out of here saying, oh, this was the don't do anything great for Jesus sermon. That's not the point. That's, the, that's not the point. The point is, where do you get your value and your worth? So where is God calling you to do something great for him, regardless of whether or not it ever gets noticed by others? And then a couple things to pray about. So we, we want to be praying people. Number one, pray that we would know at a really deep level, that our ultimate significance comes from Jesus and pray that our hearts would be freed from seeking our significance in anyone or anything else. And then number two, pray that Jesus would use us to do great things for his kingdom, whether or not it ever gets noticed or praised by others. Volunteers are gonna begin passing out the elements for uh, communion now. And as they do so, I'll invite you to hold on to that. We'll take this together in just a moment. Um, let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 to help set up what we're going to celebrate here. This is a, a sacred meal. If you're here, if you're not a Christian, we'd invite you to either abstain uh, or to give your life to Jesus and join us at the table for the first time. We welcome our younger students in for this time of response and singing as well. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. It says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, remembering that God has made a covenant with us to never leave us or forsake us. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then, friends, there's that invitation to self-examine. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This would be a great opportunity for you to examine your heart. Say, God, where might I be seeking my value and significance apart from you? How do I need to repent? How do I need to believe the gospel even more deeply in my own heart? The musicians actually have pre- prepared a time of just instrumental music. Sometimes we actually, we jump to our feet, we stand to our feet, we start singing right away. Um, they actually have forcibly made us have a time of just kind of pausing, reflecting, holding for a moment. So I invite you to do that. And, and, and as you're ready, then you can stand to your feet, eat of the table, eat of the bread, eat, drink of the cup, stand to your feet and sing with us. Let me pray one more time for us. And then we'll enter into this time of singing in response. God, Help us. God, would you help us? Would you help us, please? As we sing, as we eat, and as we drink, would you help us? God, such a simple concept to understand, such a hard concept to live out. We need your help. We need your guidance. We pray that you'd be gracious to us in this moment. And now, God, as we turn our hearts to a time of reflection, uh, may we... Be led by your spirit to reflect as you want us to. And may our attention be turned off of ourselves and turned towards Jesus in whose good name we pray. Amen.